text this morning is 1 Kings 19, uh, verses 1 to 18. Elijah went up on the mountain and prayed for rain, and he saw clouds coming, and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Then we start at verse chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, to take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food, forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not 
kissed him. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we continue our series on encounters that some of the saints in the Old Testament had with God. Our focus is one of the, on one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of the Lord in a time of great deformation in Israel. The people had turned away from the service of the Lord and had embraced the worship of the Baals. Elijah was confrontational in his approach. He prayed that for the Lord to withhold rain as a covenantal curse for breaking the covenant. And God did. Then he proposed a contest between the prophets of Baal and himself on Mount Carmel. The result was that at his instigation, the people killed the 450 Baal prophets. Elijah has experienced great victories in his service of God. Yet Queen Jezebel was not persuaded that the Lord is the true God of Israel. She threatened Elijah. She made an oath saying, May the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like one of these Baal prophets by this time tomorrow. Elijah was greatly discouraged and he ran for his life. He went out into the wilderness and sat down. He asked that he might die. He prayed, O Lord, take away my life. We see him sinking into despair, into spiritual depression. Elijah is not the only child of God who encountered deep despair in his life. When you look closely at the stories of God's people, you see the same thing happen to many of them. Moses despaired at carrying the burden of God's rebellious people, and he prayed, kill me at once. Numbers 11. Jonah was so disgusted that the Lord showed mercy to the people of Nineveh that he prayed, O Lord, please take my life from me. Jeremiah was in such despair that he laments his birth. Job was in such agony, he cursed the day of his birth. We too, beloved, can face circumstances in life where despair and hopelessness overtake us. In such circumstances, it's not uncommon for children of God to desire death. Life circumstances can be so difficult, we can be in so much pain, either physically or spiritually, that we're desperately looking for a way out. Often the only solution we see is to seek death. Our text shows us How the Lord encourages Elijah when he was brought low. It teaches us to turn to the Lord, to seek his voice in the midst of life's most bitter trials. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. In the midst of his despair, the Lord encourages Elijah through a quiet whisper. We'll consider Elijah's despair and the Lord's encouragement. 
Our text is plain about Elijah's despair. But sitting here this morning, it might be a bit hard to understand why Elijah wanted to die. We need to know a little more about what was happening to God's people in this time. King Ahab had made a political alliance with the king of Sidon. To seal this alliance, he had married the king's daughter, Jezebel. She brought her faith with her. She was a fanatical follower of Baal, the fertility god. She imported 450 Baal prophets so that the service of Baal could be institutionalized in Israel. As a prophet of the Lord, Elijah opposed her agenda with all his might. He went to the king's palace and told him there would be no rain in the land. As a fertility god, Baal was the god of rain. Without rain, the crops would not grow, the trees would not bear fruit, the animals would struggle to find feed. At that time, Israel lived a farming lifestyle. The people were utterly dependent on rain for their livelihood. No rain meant no crops, no crops meant no food. Yet not only the people's physical survival was at stake, their allegiance to Baal was committing spiritual suicide. The life and the well-being of Israel was at stake. In his life, Elijah accomplished great things. By declaring that there would be no rain in the land, Elijah showed the people how powerless Baal really was. He was supposed to be the god of rain, of crops, of fertility, of abundance. Yet the sky was like hardened bronze above them. For over three years, there'd be no rain in the land. Drought and all its effects had set in. There was no grass for the livestock to graze. Many of the people in the land were going hungry. These were desperate times in Israel. Elijah also provoked a final contest on Mount Carmel to see who the real God was. It was a contest between the Baals and the Lord the covenant God of Israel. On the one side, there were the 450 Baal prophets, and on the other was Elijah, a lone servant of God Most High. Thousands of Israelites came to see what would happen. Despite all their prayers, the Baal prophets could not get their God to send fire from heaven to light their sacrifice. Elijah mocked them, telling them to pray louder, for perhaps their God was deep in thought, or he'd gone off to relieve himself, or he was on a journey, or had fallen asleep. But despite praying all day, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Elijah then prayed a simple prayer, asking the Lord to show that he was God in heaven, and that Elijah was his prophet, and pleading for the Lord to turn the hearts of his people back to him. The Lord sent fire from heaven, consuming the altar and everything on it. The Baal prophets were all put to death. It was a resounding victory. After this, in accordance with his word, and in response to Elijah's prayers, God sent rain on the land. The drought was broken. And so, with fire and rain, 
the Lord showed forth his almighty power. He proved he was the living God of heaven and earth. And yet, shortly after this, we see Elijah in deep despair, asking the Lord to take his life. So what has happened? Why did Elijah give up hope? What was it that caused him to pray to the Lord to take his life? Outwardly, the only thing that has happened is that when Jezebel heard about how Elijah had brought about the deaths of her 450 Baal prophets, she threatened to take his life too. Our text says that Elijah was afraid and arose and ran for his life. We understand the fear and the running away. But what's harder to understand is why Elijah became so despondent that he even seeks the end of his life. The fact that Elijah left his servant behind in Beersheba before going a day's journey into the wilderness indicates he was laying down his office. He no longer wanted to be a prophet of the Lord. In his despair, he gave up. He told God to please take his life. Why does Elijah go from the heights of victory to the depths of despair? To us, it doesn't make sense that someone at the height of his success, filled with the power of the Spirit, who brought about such an incredible triumph, would now want to die. What was it about Jezebel's response that broke Elijah's heart? Why was he so discouraged after proving to all Israel that the Lord was the real God? I think we need to look at Elijah's expectations. He expected that he could turn the hearts of the Israelites back to the Lord and to his service. By praying that there would be no rain in the land, Elijah had shown that Baal was not a real God. The fact that the Lord withheld rain was part of a covenantal curse on the land for Israel's apostasy. The contest on Mount, ba on Mount Carmel showed decisively Baal was a fake, and the Lord alone was the living God of heaven and earth. Elijah expected the people to embrace the Lord as their God, to turn their backs on the worship of Baal. In his pride, Elijah thought he would, he would accomplish great things for God. He thought if he got his way, if his program worked, everything would be all right. He expected that having seen God's power demonstrated in the contest on Mount Carmel, King Ahab would lead the people in a renewed worship of the Lord. Or if the king was not willing to serve the Lord, that the Israelites would rise up in rebellion and depose him as king. Jezebel's oath that she would kill him within a day made clear that fundamentally nothing had changed in Israel. Baal worship would still be the state religion. Elijah's apparent successes didn't actually change anything. Elijah was not only too optimistic about his ability to bring lasting change to Israel. He also had a defective perspective on the power of sin. He was overcome. He was shocked. 
He was in despair over how deeply entrenched the evil in the world is and how stupid and wicked people are. How could the people see God consume the sacrifice and altar and not have their hearts turn back to him? How could they witness his lifting of the curse and providing rain for the land and then continue to support the worship of Baal? The result of Elijah's pride in thinking he could bring about lasting change in Israel and not having his unrealistic expectations fulfilled was that Elijah fell into deep despair. He gave up on his ministry as prophet of the Lord. He went off into the desert to a lonely place where he could sulk. He had himself a pity party. He asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Elijah had aspired to be better and do more than his ancestors. And now he felt like an utter failure. Certain things that we learn from this, beloved. Despair and hopelessness can have a variety of causes. Unmet expectations is often part of that. We have dreams. We have desires for our lives. We expect to live happy and fulfilled lives. When we face ongoing hardships and struggles, life can get on top of us. Pride is often part of the problem. We think we should be able to work through the issues facing us. But it can be difficult to deal with deep-rooted sin in our lives or to overcome character defects. We may be doing better for a time, but then we fall again. It's disheartening. It's depressing. We also have expectations about being happy in life, about our relationships being close, about having intimate conversations with our spouse, our, par- our parents, our kids, or our close friends. And when it doesn't happen, we get discouraged. We try to avoid conflict. We expect that through our best efforts, we can help those around us change. And yet, despite our best efforts, the results are often less than satisfactory. Negative ways of relating together, past hurts and disappointments get in the way of real change. The result is that at a certain moment, we give up. We withdraw. We run away. We cut ourselves off from other people. And then we spiral down into hopelessness. Beloved, we're not always real about the deep-rooted nature of sin. We confess the total depravity of mankind. We should expect that we and the people around us will fall and fail at times. But instead, we get upset. We get offended. We get hurt. We're also, by nature, proud beings. We think more highly of ourselves than we should. We think that with the right program or with renewed effort, we can make positive changes in our lives. But, beloved, we cannot, not on our own, 
not without God's grace and the renewing power of his spirit, not without a humble dependence on the Lord, not without prayer, not without putting on the armor of God so we stand strong in our spiritual battle. We try to change ourselves or people around us without a humble dependence on the Lord. We're bound to fail. It brings us to our second point, the Lord's encouragement. The Lord responded to Elijah's despair and hopelessness by sending an angel to minister to him. Verse 7 of our text tells us that this was the angel of the Lord. We know that that's a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. He only appears at critical moments in Israel's history when their life as a nation was under threat. Part of Elijah's despair was that he was exhausted. After the contest on Mount Carmel, King Ahab went up to Carmel to eat and drink, but not Elijah. He spent time on the mountain to pray for rain. Then he ran almost 30 kilometers to Jezreel. After Jezebel threatened his life, he traveled another 140 kilometers to Beersheba. And then a day's journey out into the wilderness. Physically, Elijah was worn out. The same often applies to us when we're struggling with depression. We don't take care of ourselves. We don't eat properly. We don't exercise adequately. We don't get enough sleep. It's noteworthy that the angel of the Lord ministers to Elijah. He provided Elijah with a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He allowed Elijah to sleep. Then again, he provided food before he sent him to meet with God at Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, where the Lord spoke the Ten Commandments to his people Israel and where he met with Moses. It was there, when Moses hid in the cleft of the rock, that the Lord showed him his glory. When Elijah came to Mount Horeb, he came to a cave and lodged in it. And then the Lord confronted his servant. The Lord asked him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He responded, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's pride comes through in the statement that he had been very zealous for God. His discouragement is seen in the fact that despite his best efforts, God's people have not repented and turned back to him. His self-pity is evident in his claim that he is the only believer left in Israel and that his life was under threat. The Lord answers Elijah's complaint in a twofold way. First, he shows his almighty power. He commands Elijah to stand on the mount before the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind that tore the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces. But the Lord was not 
in the wind. And after the wind, the Lord sent an earthquake, but he was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, God sent a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. The mighty wind, the earthquake, and fire were manifestations of God's power. God often uses wind and earthquakes and fire to bring judgment on the earth. But God was not in these things. They were only signs of his power. Secondly, God reveals himself to Elijah in the sound of a low whisper. Another version of the Bible translates a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance to the cave. A voice came to him and again asked, What are you doing here, Elijah? The fact that the Lord again asked this question shows that he is reproaching Elijah. Elijah was wrong to give up his ministry. He was wrong to be in such despair that he wanted God to take his life. There is something striking about the way that God revealed himself to Elijah. God's powerful signs of wind, earthquake, and fire didn't do anything to change Elijah's heart. We see that in the fact that Elijah gives the same answer to God's question as before. Elijah thought that if God brought the covenantal curse of withholding rain from Israel, the people would turn back to him. He thought that through a dramatic contest on Mount Carmel, the hearts of the people would change, that they would once more give their allegiance to the Lord. But God doesn't work that way. Mount Carmel was not the way to go. Dramatic signs don't change people's hearts. And God proved that in Elijah's own life when his displays of power in wind, earthquake, and fire didn't change his heart. We see that in other places in the Bible. Despite all the miraculous signs Jesus performed, that didn't result in heart change among God's people. I also want you to think of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. From hell, the rich man begged Father Abraham to send Lazarus back to his father's house. He thought that if Lazarus rose from the dead, his five brothers would repent and believe. But Abraham responded, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Elijah was wrong to think that he could change the hearts of the people through powerful signs. Dramatic events might get the people's attention, but they don't change people's hearts. That's why miracles are often called signs in the Bible. They point to the person doing them. So if powerful signs don't change people, what does? God's voice. The Lord came to Elijah with the sound of a quiet whisper. He communicated his will 
in a still, small voice. God's word changes everything. Elijah had complained about how his zealousness for God's people was all for nothing. He despaired because in his view, the people remained hard-hearted and continued to reject God. According to him, God's people had forsaken the covenant. They had broken down God's altars. They had killed his prophets. Elijah believed he was the only believer left in Israel. He felt justified in giving up his ministry. He thought it was all in vain. Yet God spoke to him. Through his voice, the Lord changed his perspectives, and he gave him hope again. He commanded Elijah to go and anoint three men. He was to anoint Hazel as next king over Syria, Jehu as next king over Israel, and Elijah as prophet in his place. Almighty God had not given up on his people. The Lord was appointing a new political and religious order to succeed the old. And this order would bring victory over Baal worship in Israel. Further, the Lord tells Elijah he was totally wrong in his negative assessment of the covenant people of Israel. There were still 7,000 people in Israel who had not bowed their knees to Baal. While there was much apostasy in the land, the Lord had preserved a faithful remnant of men and women for himself. The Belgian Confession refers to our text in Article 27. It comforts us with the message that the church has existed from the beginning of the world and will be to the end. For Christ is an eternal king who will not be without subjects. It says that this holy church is preserved by God against the fury of the whole world, although for a while it may look very small in the eyes of men. In our text, we see that the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, ministered to Elijah when he was in the midst of despair and hopelessness. Christ himself experienced a time in his life when he was feeling very low. When the struggles of his ministry caused such agony that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It happened in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night in which Christ would be betrayed. Christ was struggling with his task of drinking the cup of suffering. He was struggling with the fact that he would be crucified. It was not the physical pain that would hurt the most. It was being cut off from his Father in heaven and that he would have to bear God's wrath against all our sins. Christ prayed three times about this, asking the Father to remove the cup from him. But each time he added, not my will, but yours be done. God knew that he was struggling intensely. Luke 22 verse 43 tells us how God sent an angel from heaven to minister to him, to strengthen him so he could fulfill the purpose for which he came into this world. Jesus let 
his blessed body be nailed to the cross, that he might cancel the bond which stood against us because of our sin. He has taken his curse upon, he has taken our curse upon himself, that he might fill us with his blessing. On the cross, he humbled himself to the very deepest shame and anguish of hell. All this to save us from our sins, to restore us to living fellowship with God. In our text, we see how God's voice cuts through Elijah's despair and hopelessness. It pushes him out of his depression. It changes his heart and his life. Instead of feeling sorry for himself, Elijah is energized to take up his ministry again. Note, beloved, how God brought this change about. Not with mighty signs and wonders, but with a quiet whisper, a still, small voice, by communicating his word and his will to his servant. Also today, God works in the same way. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God through which hearts and lives are changed. We may have difficult times in our lives when the hardships and struggles of this broken world pile up upon us. We may experience despair, and hopelessness. Like Elijah, we may feel like giving up on life. We may even ask the Lord to take away our lives. But listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd as he whispers to you. He says, I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for my sheep. Christ knows us by name. In the struggles and sorrows of life, he says to us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ knows the struggles of this life. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. It's through the comfort and encouragement of the gospel that we receive strength to move on when faced with despair. There are a few passages in the Bible that describe heartache and despair as clearly as Lamentations 3. One of God's children describes the agony of seeing Jerusalem destroyed and the people going into exile. But near the end of the chapter, he shares where he found his hope again. He said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We take comfort in the fact that God doesn't give up on his children God doesn't walk away from us. 
He doesn't give up on us in disgust. He supplies new morning mercies every day in the particular situation of each of our lives. They come when we read his word, when we hear his voice. The good news of the gospel changes everything. It provides us with a living hope in Jesus Christ, our risen King. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together. Psalm 91, stanzas 1 and 5. <laughs> 